0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den, and I have General Kurt Fuller here, a guy that I met at Kay's house earlier this year, and he's just an interesting dude, my man.
1: <laughs> oh, thanks.
0: So, first question: What you smoking?
1: Well, you'll have to tell me. You gave it to me. It's a great cigar, but...
0: Providencia. Providencia. So it's, it's a new blend that Raymond had sent me. And uh, so far, the guests... I've, I've had one, and the guests that have had it really seem to like it as well. It's a nice little darker, yeah, fuller body. Nice,
1: strong, tasty cigar.
0: All I right. like it. And I am smoking a... Comfortably Numb by Espinoza, And so it's Friday, which is Floyd Friday, Pink Floyd. My art teacher in high school always played Pink Floyd on Friday for us. And so I figured what better day to pull out a Comfortably Numb than, there you go. than on a Friday. So, Kurt, where'd you grow up? You got a little bit of an accent. I'd assume probably
1: Texas Well, my dad was born in Texas, and my mom was from Oklahoma, but I was raised in Oklahoma. All right. Yeah, our family got land there on the land run in 1889. Wow. And so we've had it ever since. It's kind of a cattle ranch, and there's cropland there, too. But uh, that's where I grew up.
0: Oklahoma. And what kind of a home did you grow up in?
1: It was just a hard-working you know, farm family. My dad had a doctorate degree in forage agronomy. So he worked with the land and with crops all the time. And uh, yeah, it was just a good Christian, solid home, really focused on our family. So we had a big extended family that lived in the area and we got together on every holiday and And went quail hunting and, you know, just told stories. And for most of my childhood, my great-grandparents were alive, my grandparents. Mm. And then, of course, my parents and uncles and cousins and all that. So, yeah, it was a great, great time. Siblings? One brother, older brother.
0: Okay. So you're the baby, number two of two. Yeah, yeah what was you know growing up in the sports into
1: well hunting and fishing was kind of the primary <laughs> but uh i also was a wrestler mm. and i got pretty good at it and uh you know wanted to go to college and wrestle but i went to oklahoma state and quickly learned that i wasn't anywhere <laughs> at that level yeah I was a takedown dummy for those NCAA <laughs> champions. So, yeah, it didn't work out. But, you know, it was kind of helpful to have your ego deflated a little bit, you know, at that point in life to realize that you're not, you're not all that you thought you were. There's always somebody better.
0: So what did you study in school?
1: I uh, started out trying to get a degree in wildlife ecology. And my last semester of college, they phased out that major. What? Yeah, the guy who taught the one class I had to have to graduate had left. And so I had to settle for uh, biology. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I'd gotten in, in ROTC. Mm -hmm. So I held the Army four years after I got out. Yeah. And I always planned on doing the four years and then going back to school and getting a master's in something like marine biology or something like that. But I liked the Army, and I was really good at it. What did you like about it? Well, I liked the challenge, and I liked the people, and I liked the training, I got really lucky because I was still just a second lieutenant, but I got hired into the Ranger Regiment. Ooh. At that point, it wasn't a regiment. There were only two battalions. And then uh, very soon after that, we invaded Grenada. And so, you know, that was high adventure. Uh 500-foot combat parachute jump that was supposed to happen at night. And things went wrong with the plan, and we ended up jumping in broad daylight in 23-knot winds. And the Cubans had 23-millimeter anti-aircraft guns over the airfield, so we were getting shot at from the second we jumped out of the plane. And pretty much every day on the ground was stuff like that. It was just incredible.
0: What happened with the plans that you guys... Did it during the day and not at night?
1: Some other forces. It was supposed to be a synchronized H-hour, and some of the other forces got delayed. They were launching from all over the place, but guys uh, leaving Barbados got delayed. Uh, some Navy SEALs went in by boat, and they got capsized. And so they were trying to get it, the the timeline all sorted out, but it ended up we were just... You know, it was sun sunup. Mm-hmm. So, the enemy could see us. And it was pretty, it was, yeah, like I said, high adventure. It was a sporting drop zone for sure. But, you know, after that, I was, you know, not, there are only a handful of guys involved in that thing. And you start looking at it and thinking, man, if I can do that and do it with guys like this, incredible soldiers. I just fell in love with the whole mission, you know, all the adventure of it. And, you know, they. we never really called ourselves elite, but other people called us elite. And uh, being in a unit like that, just the traditions going all the way back to World War II and the whole culture mm-hmm. of it. And being on a really short string for uh, immediate deployment worldwide, that was our job. You know, we had to be wheels up in 18 hours from notification. And you never knew where you were going to go, but you knew you were going with the best there are. And then, you know, to stay at that level, you got to train really, really hard. And the training was just, it was fun. I mean, bottom line, we did five environmental deployments every year to the desert, to the Arctic, to the jungle, to the mountains. We did amphibious training. Those were all about 30 days long. All just great fun. So, yeah, I just stayed. And uh, the Ranger Regiment, they force you out at each rank. So as an example, I went there as a lieutenant, so I got to lead a platoon, two platoons. But then you have to leave when you make captain, and you can't come back until you've commanded a company in some other unit successfully, and then they'll bring you back and let you command a ranger company. Mm. So that's what I did, and I just kept doing that. I went back again as a major. I went back again as a lieutenant colonel. Ended up spending almost 13 years in the Rangers, which was kind of unheard of. Really? At the time, yeah, for an officer. So, yeah, and that just kind of set the baseline for the rest of it. And I always, you know, you always have that, when am I going to get out? When does this end? And it just, the doors kept opening and great assignments and... Still having a lot of fun, really challenged with the work. And I was good at it. So what the heck? I just served just a couple of months short of 36 years.
0: Did you ever have a goal of like, I want to become a general?
1: No, I never had that. In fact, that was a real tough one for me. When I got passed over a couple of times as a colonel, And that's another story, but bottom line is I didn't get along too well with my division commander in the 82nd Airborne, and he gave me some bad paper. Not bad, but not good enough to make general. So I got passed over several times, but at that point I was working in the Joint Special Operations Command. The war on terror had already kicked off. This was about 2005. And all of a sudden, I popped on the list for Brigadier. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be a general. Really? Why? No. Why? Well, at that level, you kind of get separated from the troops. You know, you're not really leading troops directly anymore. You're doing it indirectly through subordinates. And, you know, there's just a whole lot of baggage uh, sort of, policy kind of stuff that comes with being a general
0: like what describe that for the listeners that aren't familiar with military culture
1: well I guess probably the easiest way to do that would be to explain what caused me to retire because they wanted to promote me again and they were going to give me a core command of a corps. but now we're at the point where you know The so-called repeal of don't ask, don't tell had happened. So really that's not what happened. Don't ask, don't tell was an executive order put in place by President Clinton. The law said homosexuality is incompatible with military service, and it had been that way for decades. And the executive order told us to ignore the law, look the other way, and don't make a big deal out of this. So, you know, there's an issue. Now, thankfully, I never ran into a situation where I had to deal with that, but I know people who did. And then, you know, when the Congress finally changed the law and allowed homosexuals to serve openly, a couple of things popped out. One was, here are a bunch of people that have been in the military for a long time who now came out of the closet. So they had been lying about their lifestyle for, some, in some cases, a couple of decades. They just lied. Mm-hmm. Well, now you see these people and you wonder if they lied about that, I wonder what else they're feel comfortable lying about, you know? So how can I trust them? And this, the whole military profession is based on trust primarily. And so that kind of eroded some cultural norms in the military. Well, then the second thing is it wasn't, when they first put out the implementing guidance, they were talking, well, we're just going to tolerate this. And as long as their behavior doesn't interfere with their, performance then no problem so as I read that and as a senior leader I looked at it and said you know I think I can live with this because I know there are people that are living this lifestyle that work for me and we also know that they're going to have problems because of it there are going to be psychological problems medical problems, relationship issues, and uh, spiritual problems. And so it's better to know who they are before they start to have a meltdown so you can try to help them work their way through it than it is to just try to ignore it and pretend that it's not a reality. But within a year of them implementing this, It was no longer, well, we're just going to tolerate this kind of behavior. You were expected to promote it, to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a Christian, it was clear to me that that's sinful behavior and it's an unhealthy lifestyle. And I wasn't prepared to promote it, certainly not celebrate it. But yeah, we had Gay Pride Day in the Pentagon, and you know, on and on. And so then, not long after that, comes along the whole transgender issue. Yeah. And you know, the administration pushed that through. Uh, in spite of the objections of everybody in uniform because they knew, hey, this is a psychological disorder here. This is mental illness is what we're talking about. Gender dysphoria. Dysphoria, just look up the definition, you know. It's not normal and it's not good and now we're going to give these people guns and tell their leadership, make sure they don't have a problem down the road, send them a battle. Well, we didn't have a shortage of people. You know, I never understood what problem we were trying to solve other than, you know, diversity and those kind of deals. But... So, you know, and then it it rolled on from there to, hey, we're gonna put women in the combat arms. We're gonna have female infantry squad leaders. Well, why? Again, what problem are we trying to solve? We don't have a shortage of infantrymen we never have in the history of our military. So what are we trying to do here? And what does that mean to the young 20-year-old girl who gets in it and she's really healthy? And I had some incredible female soldiers, Mm. world-class athletes, where no question they could physically do the job now. But what about when they're 35 or 40 and they've had a couple of kids and now they're getting to the place where they're uh, wanting to lead at the battalion or the brigade level and they physically can't do it anymore. I mean, I saw what having children did to my wife, you know, physically, and it takes a serious toll. And I'm a guy who lived it for decades and it's a rough lifestyle physically. Mm And, uh, I realized that it's going to be bad for them down the road and it's going to be bad for the organization having to deal with all these issues that come from like co-ed, you know, combat arms units. And of course, a whole bunch of combat veterans opposed it and fought it, but, you know, it went through anyway. So now that's the reality. And I think it's going to cost us in a future war if we get into another, you know, really knock-down, drag-out like World War II or Korea. People are going to die because of some of these decisions that were made. So those are some of the policy issues you get tangled up in. And it's not, well, do I support it or oppose it? It's, I'm in charge and I have to Enforce it. Mm. It's my job to make sure everybody follows this policy. Even if I violently disagree with it, I've got to enforce it. So yeah, I didn't wanna be a general for a lot of other reasons, but those were primary ones. And I had to pray about it. I went and fasted for five days and prayed. Mm. I didn't know what to do. I was actually gonna turn it down and retire. And uh, my youngest daughter at the time came up to me and put her hand on my knee and asked me, "Daddy, I know you got a hard decision to make." I think she was eight years old. Wow. And she said, "I just wanted to ask you, if you don't do this, who will do it?" Oh, I'm mean, oh my God, right in the heart. Wow." And I immediately started thinking about some of the people who would get promoted in my stead and whether I could do the job better than them. And I realized, hey, I got to do it. So I took the star. You're
0: tearing up a little bit when when you talk about that. I mean,
1: that's wow. So, you know, after that, I was a general. (laughs) Some people say you have to get a frontal n- lobotomy to become one. <laughs> but now, yeah, I had goals early on. You know, when I was a captain, I wanted to command a ranger company. You know, when I was a lieutenant colonel, I wanted to command a ranger battalion. And uh, I wanted to command the regiment. But I ended up commanding a battalion in the 10th Mountain Division and a brigade, a regiment in the 82nd Airborne Division. Then I was deputy commander of the 82nd Airborne. And then I commanded the 25th Division in Hawaii. And then I was deputy commander of Army Special Operations Command and deputy commander of the 1st Corps. And I was also Deputy Commander of U.S. Forces Afghanistan, and at the same time, I was dual-headed as the Operations Officer for NATO, the NATO forces, the mm-hmm. mission in Afghanistan. So I had some good jobs as a general, some stuff I learned a lot, but it wasn't the same as being with the troops.
0: Mm. What were some of those lessons that you learned?
1: Well, you know, kind of the senior level leadership, how to institute change in a really large organization. And there were a lot of things that, you know, as time went on, we realized we had to adjust what we were doing and make some big changes, and some of them weren't real popular. And, you know, uh, you learn how to negotiate that and get your subordinates on board and get them to support what you're doing. Those were important for me. Not that I use them now, but I could probably help teach other people how to do that successfully. I think the biggest one was I learned about spiritual warfare. Mm. So this happened in Afghanistan where I encountered what I believed to be a principality but it was an extremely powerful, evil presence that got inside my head. I was in a helicopter, and we had a little crisis on the ground, and we were flying around trying to sort out what was happening and what we needed to do next. And I got hammered by this thing. And, I mean, it, it terrorized me. It almost killed me. It was telling me to do things that were completely unnatural, you know, like jump out of the helicopter. You're gonna die anyway. You're gonna lose your weapon. You're gonna get captured, just bombarded with all these negative thoughts and mainly about death. And uh, after a little bit, I realized this is not me. This is not a natural, that's not how I think. So if it's not natural, it must be supernatural. And so I started praying, I mean, out loud right there in the helicopter. And as soon as I said the name Jesus Christ, boom, it stopped. So then I realized, okay, this was an attack. And I got to figure this out because I could never let this happen to me again, especially in, in combat, In the
0: middle of a where crisis. You're
1: incapacitated, you know, for a while. So I started studying spiritual warfare and I learned a lot of really important life lessons from it. The first one being the fact that it's real, it actually happens. There is a supernatural battle going on around us all the time. We can't see it. Sometimes we can discern it. But if we're not sensitive to it, we'll blame it on something else, something Besides what it really is, and therefore will make wrong decisions about how to respond. And so I meet a lot of Christians who don't have that worldview of supernatural warfare, of spiritual warfare going on, and they you know kind of careen through life into one ditch and out and back into the other ditch because they're being manipulated by the kingdom of darkness. Mm-hmm. They're being attacked and they don't even know it. So then the other one was, well okay, as I studied it I began to realize that this should not happen to a Christian. As long as you're not living in the unconfessed sin, You're pretty much bulletproof from this stuff. So I had to start praying, Lord, what was it that allowed that thing to have access to my mind? I thought I had on the armor Armor. of God. Well, yeah, I did, but I had a chink in that armor. And he showed me what it was, which is really the most powerful lesson of the whole experience. And it was that I was enjoying what I was doing. I was enjoying killing the enemy. When we killed an Al-Qaeda commander, we kind of high-fived and celebrated, you know? We were taking evil out of the world. And what the Lord showed me is that's not how I see it at all. Ooh, ooh. Those guys aren't my enemy. They're the victims in all of this they're the captives that Jesus came to set free. It's like, whoa. Never looked at it that way. Wow! And so I sort of had to recalibrate my whole mindset. And it wasn't that it was a bad thing to be killing bad people. It was the heart that I was doing it with, the spirit of the thing. And instead of being happy about it, you know, I had to learn that, you know, it's unfortunate, it's sad, it's a tragedy that we've got to kill people like this, but they do have to go. Because if we don't, they're gonna kill hundreds and thousands of innocent people. This trauma across the land is gonna continue. So, yeah, that was another big lesson.
0: How did that change the rest of your career? And how, did you take that lesson and then kind of filter it down through the chain of command?
1: I tried to do it in subtle ways. I mean, it's not something you can just step out in front of a bunch of troops that are laser focused on the mission and tell them, you're not supposed to enjoy this. You know? But yeah, I mean, I started to talk about the fact that these people were being victimized, they're caught up in a system, they're brainwashed into doing this. They think that they're doing holy work. I mean, this is holy war to them, jihad. And so, you know, you kind of have to put yourself in there and look at it from their perspective and realize maybe they're not all bad guys. Maybe there's a way to save some of them, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, it changed the way I looked at some things and the way I articulated the mission, you know, and explained the necessity of what we were doing. But unfortunately, that experience came sort of toward the end of my career. Mm. So I didn't have a lot of time to put it into practice, And, you know, there's another thing I ask. I wonder why something this powerful would attack me. I mean, I'm just some guy out here on the battlefield. Why would I be targeted like that? Other than the fact that I gave an opening. But I I also, I learned a bunch of us were doing was we were praying for the land and the people Everywhere we went, everywhere we stepped, we were claiming it for the kingdom of God. And we were asking the Lord to open the hearts of these people and soften their hearts and get them to see the truth and stop fighting each other, stop murdering each other. And, uh, you know, just let heaven open up over this place and bring a revival, you know, bring the, the truth of the gospel in and that's why I got attacked because the guy in charge of that part of the world didn't like that at all. I actually believe it was the Prince of Persia, the same principality that stopped the messenger angel from getting to Daniel mm. to, with the answer from God. so that Michael had to step in and fight that guy so that that messenger angel could make it through But it was that powerful I mean it was it was incredibly scary
0: so when you started to pray for the land and for the hearts and minds of the individuals in that land how did that change you
1: we were all stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina and there's a really incredible church there called manna and the senior pastor michael fletcher realized okay here's an opportunity i've got all these military guys that are rotating into this dark part of the world constantly and we should equip them for what they're about to do and uh, so we got some training on how to it was called advancing the kingdom was the curriculum and uh, you know, how we should pray while we were there. And so we all got equipped and we started doing that. And yeah, I mean, it it really puts you in a, let's say, a safer mindset where you realize, okay, I got to keep my eye on the big picture here. This isn't just about the meat grinder combat that's going on down on the ground. This is about God's plan for the whole planet and these people here have never heard it and we've got to somehow make them understand what's happening in the strategic picture so I don't know I think it helped me a lot I mean as an example I never struggled with PTSD or any of that kind of stuff I do have dreams at night that wake my wife up sometimes, but I don't remember them. Mm. And so, yeah, I've never gotten tripped up by that. And I think that aspect of it, to understand the spiritual implications of operating in a combat zone is mentally very helpful, Mm. healthy.
0: Who are some of the people from your service that really poured into you or mentored you or just great friends that really kind of walked through your career and you really had a great camaraderie with?
1: I really think that's the secret sauce of the Rangers and Special Operations Forces in general, is that is really emphasized. I mean, every step of the way I had them my very first platoon sergeant in the Army. When he retired, he was the final Vietnam-era draftee that was still in the Army. So he got drafted when he was a teenager and went to Vietnam. And I met him, he was a sergeant first class. He was my platoon sergeant. He retired as the command sergeant major of an Army four-star general. And he was a great mentor. He taught me everything he knew. My first company commander and first sergeant did. My battalion commanders, the regimental commanders, two or three of them, really took me under their wing and taught me stuff. And then those guys went on to become, you know, really important people, generals. And all through their career, they stayed in touch with me. You've probably heard of Stan McChrystal. I worked for that guy for nine years, and he was a great mentor, awesome mm. soldier, incredible leader. Now, his political views are 180 out from mine. As far as I know, he's not a Christian, but as a soldier, he knew what the heck he was doing, mm. and I learned a lot from the guy. And there were people like that all through my career. I wouldn't have stayed if it hadn't been that way.
0: How does the army and really the armed forces, how do they keep that culture going and how do they not lose that?
1: Well, that's the danger of all this, you know, social engineering that's going on in the military right now. That's the key reason a lot of veterans oppose what's happening is because that culture is at risk. That foundation of trust and respect. But I'll give you an example kind of to answer your question. The US Army has probably written more on leadership than any other organization in history. And, you know, leadership is one of the foundational things that they teach. Now, there's some leadership ability that is. I won't say it's genetic, but certain people have leadership skills that are just one of their gifts. But there's also a lot of skills that can be taught. And so as an example, when you have these great mentors that are bringing you up, part of what they're showing you is this is what you need to do. With your youngsters that are just coming in, you need to take some of them and teach them this stuff and pour into them. And that's really huge in the ranger culture in particular. So Mm. it's sort of mandatory. If you're not doing that, then you probably don't belong there and they'll see it right away and they won't welcome you back.
0: You're married? Mm -hmm. When did you meet your wife?
1: Right after we invaded Grenada. She was a flight attendant at TWA, and she wasn't supposed to be on that flight. And we got upgraded to business class because the ticket agent realized who we were and what we'd just done. So there were three of us, and we got into business class, and we were the only three in there besides a World War II vet that had made all four combat jumps. Wow. And so we were all sitting there telling war stories, and my wife is going back and forth, and I noticed her, and we talked, and I tried to get her number, and she wouldn't give it. So I gave her mine, and she got hung up on a flight a little while later about a month later and called me and asked, you know, hey, would you want to get together? I'm stuck here in Seattle for a couple of days. So, you know, one thing led to another, but we met in 1983 and got married in 86.
0: What was it about her that drew you to her?
1: Well, number one, she was gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) And she just had this bubbling personality. She wasn't one of these mean, angry flight attendants that, you know, it looks like she's doing it because she has to. She was really enjoying interacting with the passengers. So, you know, you could tell she was a good person.
0: Was she a believer? Have any faith?
1: Her family went to church when there was a crisis, you know, but other than that, not really. So she wasn't saved in the way that we would say she hadn't been baptized but that happened not long after before we got married you know I started taking her to church and and now I mean I don't know how I would have made it through we were married almost you know I was in the army she's put up with it for over 30 years and I wouldn't have made it if it hadn't been for her Hmm. and her strength How so? Well, she just understood that this is something I got to do. This is my profession. And even though there was a lot of fear and separation involved, I mean, I was deployed in combat for six years while we were married. And then there were constant deployments for training where I was always gone. And even when we weren't deployed, We were out in the field training, you know. We'd train all week long, all night. A lot of times we did reverse cycle where we slept in the day and trained at night exclusively. And so, yeah, I mean, she didn't see a lot of me, but she hung in there and she supported me and encouraged me and really became a mentor to the younger wives. And then she raised our two daughters and homeschooled them both while I was gone, you know, and they turned out incredibly well. Both of them are going to ministry school at IHOP, you know, International Mm -hmm. House of Prayer. In Kansas City. They're going to IHOP U, the School of Ministry, both of them juniors. I couldn't be happier.
0: (laughs) What is it that. I mean, I'm sure you've saw marriages fall apart because of those deployments and that kind of a schedule. And then the marriages that, you know, they either thrived, they made it work. What was it that, that made those couples thrive versus the ones that didn't?
1: Well, the word we came up with and we really we started a program to try to develop this in in our soldiers and their spouses. It's resiliency. And so we mapped out what we called the dimensions of resiliency, you know? And it's different areas of fitness, mental, relational, spiritual. We even added financial in there because we started to realize that one of the reasons couples fight, what starts it is money, Mm -hmm. finances, and the inability to properly manage their finances. So we got Dave Ramsey's curriculum and started teaching, you know, how to be financially resilient, you know, and how to properly save money, manage your spending and all that. And I guess that's my answer. It's being resilient and understanding that, hey, this is about human relationships. And those rely on communication. You have to talk to each other about what's bothering you. And a lot of times that doesn't happen in marriages, you know. They just avoid the subject because of the drama involved and it's gonna lead to an argument. But if you can just listen, listen to what your spouse is saying and understand, try to understand why they feel the way they do. And hey, maybe it is a lot because of you and your behavior. Maybe there's some things you need to change, but there's also some things. You know, I think a real key to it is realizing that your happiness is not the responsibility of your spouse. Oh, yeah. That's between you and the Lord. And if you're unhappy, it's not because of your wife. It's because you got a crummy relationship with your creator. You fix that, all the rest of the relationships in life will sort themselves out. As a matter of fact, that's the devil's number one target. Mm. If he can't get you to believe that he doesn't exist and therefore God doesn't exist, he will start to try to wreck your relationships and take your mind off of what's really important. Mm. That's and powerful. he's really good at it. He's been doing it for centuries, and he's got a whole army that that's what they do.
0: Mm. So you retire from the army. Why settle in Colorado? <clears throat>
1: Well, that was a God thing, too. My wife and daughters wanted to go to the Smokies, and we always loved the mountains. We knew we were going to go to the mountains somewhere. In spite of the fact that we got this property in Oklahoma and this, you know, kind of legacy there in my family, we realized as we started getting closer, we don't want to go there. Your
0: brother didn't take over the farm?
1: No, my brother is in in Washington. He works for the army out there he retired as a colonel and got a job as an army civilian so he's out there and my mom and dad lived there on the farm and we always figured we'd build houses next to them and stay there but my mom died and then my dad kind of went off the rails because they were married for over 60 years and he didn't know what to do without her and he eventually got remarried and they moved to Florida to one of those retirement communities. So we started looking around and there's my grandparents were dead. There's no one else around. It's not like it used to be when we were growing up.
0: All that extended family. Yeah. And
1: And so we said mountains that we looked all over the Smokies and all the places that were attractive were like off the grid, you know, like, 20 miles from town, (laughs) and the girls didn't, they weren't going to sign up for that. Where'd your wife grow up? She grew up in Ohio. Okay. Her family were coal miners from Kentucky, and when the mines started petering out, they went a little further north, and uh, really, she spent a lot of her time in Cincinnati growing up. Her dad was a barber, and her mom was a hairdresser, and so... Yeah, anyway, I wanted to go to the Grand Tetons. I'd always loved it up there. Well, bottom line is neither place worked out. I mean, the Grand Tetons are way too expensive. And like I said, the Smokies, where we wanted, was too remote. So we were both praying about it for months, really. And I woke up one morning and I said, Sheila, I think the Lord's saying we should be in the, looking at the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, yeah, I know. He told me that a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I didn't want to live in a city. So we started looking. I started looking in western Colorado because when I got out of high school, I'd worked for the United Mine Workers Union out there. Paonia, Somerset area, close to Gunnison. Everywhere I showed them, they said, Well, that's nice, but where are the trees? You know, they wanted the aspen trees. So then we realized all these people we know live in Colorado Springs. I mean, literally hundreds of really close friends. And then over 80 Christian ministries with their headquarters here. We thought, Wow. So we started looking just west, you know, and ended up where we are, north of Woodland Park, out in the woods, and it's beautiful. I mean, the Lord brought us here, no doubt about it. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to
0: talk about before we get to the questions? Any stories that...
1: Oh, man, I could tell hundreds of them. We could go on forever. I, I will tell you, looking back, after I retired, I started looking back on... Both training and our training was really intense and very dangerous. I mean, we were paratroopers, commandos. And so it was all high risk stuff. And then six years in combat. And I counted up over 20 times where I should have been killed. Where when you look back on it, you go, you know, It's a miracle that I lived through that. And really thinking in detail of the events that were involved and realizing the Lord was protecting me through all of this. There's no way I should have lived. So then it's, all right, why? And it's almost like a feeling Well, it is. It's a real strong feeling that I owe something. I I need to pay this back. So it's, what is it, Lord? What do you got for me, man? I'm ready. At Kay's house,
0: you talked about your friendship with Michael Flynn.
1: Talk about that. So when I came out of brigade command in the 82nd Airborne I got hired to go to JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command. That's the America's Counter Terrorist Task Force. And of course their number one job was Al-Qaeda, you know, to dismantle and destroy the whole Al-Qaeda network globally. And I was the operations officer and Mike Flynn was the intelligence officer. So we deployed in the two of us spent 26 months straight deployed, and we were living in a little plywood shack about 10 foot by 20 foot and working side by side through everything. In fact, it got to the point where, you know, VIPs would come in and want to get briefed on what we were doing, and Flynn and I would tag team the briefing and then at the end of it, these were senior generals and, you know, senators and stuff. And at the end, we would ask, do you have any questions? And a lot of times they would say, yeah, I got one. Tell me again, which one of you is the intel officer and which one's the ops officer? Because, you know, we were just in sync on everything. And he's a great guy, great American patriot. It's really criminal what they did to him. So... Yeah. I haven't talked to him in several years now, but we were really close.
0: Mm. General Kurt Fuller, let's get to rapid-fire questions. All right. Hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid-fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you, as a listener, can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes patreon is a support platform and for as little as five dollars a month you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes holy smoke swag like t-shirts and more that's patreon.com slash holy smokes we're looking to get 40 patreon supporters at an average of 10 dollars a month and once we hit that we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting editing writing posting I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant, web developer, record on location and around the world and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle, and I want to go to Dallas, and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky, and Chicago, and Phoenix, Atlanta, D.C., Charlotte, back to Southern California, and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So, can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. Or... If you want to make a one-time tax deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash smokes club. That's paypal.me slash smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. <laughs> fire.
1: <laughs> when did you first try Cigars or Pipe? We really started with it in uh Iraq and Afghanistan. A bunch of us would get together at night and get outside. I mean, we'd climb up on one of those former, you know, Iraqi, Soviet-built aircraft bunkers out in the middle of the desert. Now it's cool, finally. And, you know, if you've never been in the desert or on the ocean where there's no ambient light anywhere, You see the stars like you've never seen them. Mm. And we'd sit out there and talk through, okay, what happened today? What's likely going to happen tomorrow? What do we need to do to get ready? What do we need to do to change in our campaign plan that's not working? And really talk some deep subjects. And we'd smoke cigars while we were doing it. What?
0: Because... My friends that are in the military or have been in the military, they talk about just that camaraderie that cigars kind of give you a chance to kind of just decompress.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's just finally a time you can relax and let the worry go. Stop worrying about stuff and just think about, okay, here's all the positive things that are happening. Here's how we continue to reinforce those things. And yeah, there's bad things happening, but there's things we can do about it. We can mitigate some of this. So how do we do that? And we just enjoy our cigars outside. In uh, Afghanistan, we climb up on the roof of the Joint Operations Center overlooking the airfield at Bagram and smoke our cigars up there and have the same kind of discussions. In those groups,
0: did... Any of those guys that were on the ground level ever hang out with you guys? Yeah, we would invite
1: guys like that up. Nice. You know, so we could get a perspective from the guys that were, you know, out there on the cutting edge of it.
0: How did that help you?
1: Oh, tremendously. You know, because you can get kind of focused on what you're seeing and if you don't get input from those that are out there, you know, seeing it from a different perspective, then you can kind of lose the bubble. Mm. And those guys would help us bring it back to reality. Like, well, hey, boss, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but that ain't really how it works. Let me tell you what it's really like.
0: Ooh. You know, <laughs> that's powerful. Yeah, cigars or pipe.
1: I have smoked a pipe in the past. I enjoy them, but I like cigars better.
0: Favorite cigar?
1: I like the Drew Estate Tabaca Special, the coffee infused cigars.
0: Really good. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Or, been, or been gifted, bought or gifted.
1: We used to, guys that knew where we were and what we were doing, they would send us boxes of cigars overseas. And one guy sent us, I don't know the name of them, but they were a Gurkha. Mm -hmm. And they were like 20 years old. I think they were stored in old whiskey barrels to age them. And it was, I don't know, like $23 cigar. And it was incredible.
0: Best dollar-for-dollar cigar you've ever smoked?
1: It's a crummy name, but it's called Dark Shark. Dark Shark. It's a super cheap little cigar, but it's really tasty. Burns well. Yeah, I think they're like three bucks a pop or something.
0: Dark Shark. I'll have to take a look at that. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes?
1: I give them off the internet. Different people tell me about specials and stuff.
0: Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke?
1: Sour mash bourbon. I I like bourbon whiskey across the board, but there's something about sour mash that makes a big difference for me. There aren't really high-end sour mashes out there, but there's some good ones. Old Crow is a good one. There's one called Tin High, Dirt Cheap. You know, you'd think it's some kind of rot gut, but it's really good bourbon.
0: Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars?
1: A guy named Mike Scaparotti. Well, he was deputy commander of 1st Armored Division when we were chopped to them. My airborne brigade was under 1st Armored Division in Baghdad in 2003 and four and he was the deputy commander for operations. And then he became my commanding general in the 82nd Airborne. And he ended up retiring as Supreme Allied Commander Europe. But uh, yeah, just an incredible guy, great leader, great American, and yeah, we smoked cigars together a lot.
0: Most memorable cigar experience?
1: I'd say it was sitting on the roof of that headquarters in Bagram and we made some really critical decisions smoking cigars. Mm. And one of them we decided that we were going to embed with the Afghan army. Mm. So I took 33 guys from the division headquarters and we moved in to the 203rd Corps headquarters. And I really was the deputy to an Afghan Corps commander. And we worked, all my guys were on his staff. Mm. And we told him, this is your battle space now, not ours. It's your responsibility to make the plans and decide what operations you're going to conduct. And it's our job to make sure you're successful. Whatever resources you need, we're going to deliver. And I did that for a year. I lived and ate with those guys, went to every one of their meetings, went on their operations with them, and uh, incredible experience. Huh. And that was all based on sitting on a rooftop smoking cigars thing, saying, saying, what can we do to make this work? Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek.
0: Ooh. Favorite food? Elk. Ooh. A nice elk steak. What do you want to pair it with on that plate?
1: My wife makes these incredible mashed potatoes with cheese in them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Dogs, cats, neither, or both?
1: Both. I like all animals.
0: Nickname growing up? or in the army?
1: Well, for a long time in the army, they called me Casca. There was a guy, Barry Sadler, who wrote the song, The Ballad of the Green Berets. He wrote a book series. Casca was a Roman soldier. And in the book, he was the one who stabbed Jesus with the spear and killed him, or made sure he was dead. And he was cursed from then on that he wouldn't die, and he would be a soldier forever. And so it leads through all the wars of history, and this guy fought in them all. And because when I was young, I had more time in combat than most people that I served with, they called me Casca. What's
0: one unusual fact that few people know about you?
1: Ooh, I don't know. I'm pretty open. Not sure what that would be.
0: Favorite one to three books, not titled The Holy Bible.
1: Well, there's one I just read that I highly recommend. Uh, John Eldridge, All Things New. Mm. He talks about what life is gonna be like in our resurrected bodies in eternity. Really cool. Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. Really, really good book. And then I like all, anything written by Michael or Jeff Shara. Michael Shara wrote the book, The Killer Angels, about the Civil War. Mm. And then he died and his son took all his manuscripts and wrote the rest of the Civil War series. Then Michael also wrote the whole series on the revolutionary war and he wrote a series on world war 2 and every book there is incredible it's historical fiction Ooh. so he knows the characters so well that he can put words in their mouth as to what they probably would have said at that point yeah and the rest of it's all actual accurate history and so the way he writes, it's just, I'd recommend all of them to anybody who is a student of American history. Mm.
0: One scripture that really is kind of like your life scripture.
1: Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith faith in the son of God who loved me and gave his life for me
0: hmm. early riser night owl
1: or nightmare. both yeah I get on different cycles I like to get up and watch the sun come up but sometimes I stay up late too
0: who's been the greatest influence in your life
1: my wife
0: hmm. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person you think of?
1: Man, I guess that depends on what I'm reading at the time. I don't know. A lot of people come to mind. Throw a
0: few names out there.
1: I'm reading a book right now. It's about Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I really didn't realize what a great president he was until I started looking at his life and the things he said. And, you know, I guess American presidents really come to mind. Ronald Reagan, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, guys like that that just put the country on the correct course. It's a hard thing to do.
0: What do you do for self-care to rest, to recharge?
1: i go outside. Mm. It's therapy for me to be out in the woods. What
0: culture, other than the American culture, do you admire and look up to or respect deeply?
1: Not many, man. I'll tell you what, though. They get a really bad rap, but there's something about Afghanistan and the people there. In spite of all the challenges they face They're good people In the way they live There's others too that I ran into during the war The Peshmerga, you know, the Kurdish people in northern Iraq The Peshmerga is their military Incredible, brave, humble Mm. Respectful they love each other. What do you think it would take for
0: Afghanistan to really be on a, on the right course and for us to then be able to?
1: We have to deal with Pakistan and we're not gonna do it. Pakistan is the issue. They're the key problem. They're the ones who influence all the negative stuff inside of Afghanistan. And as long as the Taliban and at least a dozen other terrorist organizations have sanctuary inside of Pakistan, that part of the world's never gonna settle down. But the real thing that it's gonna take, it's gonna take a Christian revival in that part of the world. That's what's gotta happen. I mean, let's face it, Islam has to go. Islam is the source of all the conflict. Hmm. And the only thing that can displace it is the truth of the gospel.
0: When you were on the ground, did you see that sort of push of the church starting to try and pour into that area of the world?
1: Yeah, there's huge advances for the kingdom in in that part of the world right now. All the Muslim world, as a matter of fact, unfortunately... We made the biggest mistake in the history of the US military when 9-11 kicked off because the four-star in charge of Central Command that owns that territory on the map put out General Order Number One. And there were three things to it that were made perfect sense. One was no pornography, no alcohol, and no interacting with the local women. All made perfect sense in a Muslim culture. You don't want pornography around your soldiers anyway, and you certainly don't want them drinking alcohol in combat. But the fourth part of that order was no proselytizing. And if we would have allowed our soldiers and our chaplains to share Jesus with those people... We would have changed the whole nature of the conflict, and we'd have had a different outcome. Mm. We missed a huge opportunity. Mm. Now, a bunch of us did it anyway, quietly. But really, to stay out of trouble, you had to wait for them to ask you about it, and then then I felt comfortable sharing it because they asked. But a lot of ways you could indirectly encourage them to ask like this whole idea of overcoming fear so when i'm out with afghans or iraqis that are scared to death of the battlefield and i'm showing i'm i'm not worried about it Mm. i mean if i get killed it's like paul said to die is gain so If I get killed doing this, it's part of God's plan, and it's all fine with me. So if you can overcome that fear, then people start watching you and saying, what is it about that guy? I'm going to ask him, Mm -hmm. and then you can tell him. Mm
0: -hmm. How'd you get plugged into Holy Smokes?
1: Kay, Hiramini, and a When did uh, you meet Kay? Well, a really good friend of mine. I'm not going to mention his name because he's doing some really dangerous stuff in the Muslim world. Mm. He's a real powerful warrior for the kingdom. But he came to my house one day to have a kind of a strategic discussion. And he brought Kay with him. And we smoked a cigar.
0: (laughs) What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your faith journey?
1: Well, I mean, I guess the principal thing is realizing that there are very successful people that are absolutely walking the walk, Mm. that are on fire for Jesus, that, you know, kind of enjoy the same things and are in this sort of loosely affiliated global organization. I have never met someone at a Holy Smokes event that I didn't like and respect. Almost immediately, it's like, whoa, that guy, that's an incredible guy right there. I wish I'd have met him years ago, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, it kind of is encouraging to know that there are so many people out there that are like-minded, spirit-filled believers, you know, that are out there doing it every day and and they're having wildly successful lives, you know? Yeah. They're blessed people.
0: Last two questions. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, Mm. who would they be
1: can't name Jesus. Well, I'll get as close to him as I can then. You know, the scripture tells us that after Jesus was resurrected, he spent 40 days teaching the disciples. But there's nothing recorded about what he taught them. Mm. There's things you can extrapolate from what they said afterward, but I'd like to sit down with Paul and Peter. And maybe James and just have him tell me, what did he say to you? What did he show you? What did he teach you? Mm.
0: Those are three good names. All right. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I have a bottle of that sour mash whiskey that you <laughs> oh so love. What are we celebrating?
1: I think we celebrate life, man, being alive. A year from today, so October, well, every year I go elk hunting, and maybe it's we're celebrating that I finally killed a Boone and Crockett record book bull. <laughs> I killed a trophy this year, but yeah. it wasn't record book.
0: Yeah, General Kurt Fuller, thank you for your service to this nation, and thank you for being a part of the Holy Smokes community and for coming on the Holy Smokes podcast.
1: Well, thank you, brother. I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. I hope what I had to say helped somebody.
0: I've got one question that, that I wanna ask um, that uh, the editor can drop in before, before we go to rapid fire. So Kurt, now that you're retired, what are you doing besides hunting and fishing? What are your plans? Because you're not, you're not an old dude. you still got a bunch of years left. Yeah.
1: Well, I pray about that every day. I'm not sure what it is the Lord has for me. I tell people, I hope I don't have to wait as long as Moses to get my next mission. But I'm open, whatever it is. And a lot of times doors will open and I'll, I'll participate in something. I'm helping a ministry that uh, is evangelizing the Muslim world, and I speak on Islam because I know the truth of Islam. I've read the Quran, I've read the Hadiths. I understand the mindset and the darkness that comes from that. I uh, teach at it's Officer Christian Fellowship. So they have two resorts in America. One of them is in Buena Vista and the other one is in Pennsylvania. And I've gone there and taught and I've taught on spiritual warfare. Right now I'm deep into studying end times prophecy because there are more than twice as many books written on the second coming of Jesus than there were on the first. So I figure that's something we're supposed to know about and prepare ourselves for. And I think we're getting very close to that second coming. And of course that means some serious persecution of Christians happen in the front of that. So yeah, I'm studying that. But honestly, I don't know what my next calling is yet. I believe it's something that my wife and I will do together.
0: Ooh. Ooh. All right. And then note to the editor. I want to put this after Kurt's last question in the rapid fire and replace my old clothes. Well, General Kurt Fuller, I hope, I genuinely hope that one year from today, you have an answer to that Amen. next chapter. And that is really what we are celebrating.
1: Amen, I hope so too.
0: General Kurt Fuller, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Thanks for being a part of our community and thank you for your service to this nation.
1: You betcha.